Slave Girl, Lucy Terry Prince. On Tuesday, August 21st, 1821, the following obituary notice appeared in the Franklin Herald of Greenfield, Massachusetts. Quote, At Sunderland, Vermont, July 11th, Mrs. Lucy Prince, a woman of color, from the church and town records where she formerly resided, we learn that she was brought from Bristol, Rhode Island to Deerfield, Massachusetts, when she was four years old, by Mr. Ebenezer Wells, that she was 97 years of age, that she was early devoted to God and baptism, that she united with the church in Deerfield in 1745, was married to Abijah Prince, May 17, 1756, by Elijah Williams, Esquire, and that she had been the mother of seven children. In this remarkable woman, there was an assemblage of qualities rarely to be found among her sex. Her valuability was exceeded by none, and in general, the fluency of her speech was not destitute of instruction and education. She was much respected among her acquaintance, who treated her with a degree of difference. This item, reprinted from the Vermont Gazette of Bennington, Vermont, is remarkable on a number of counts. In the first place, it seems to be the sole time Lucy Terry Prince's name or notice of her appeared in the public press. It was an era when obituary notices were characterized by their brevity, particularly in the case of women. But this one is of unusual length and, moreover, correct in historical detail. Something of this contemporary importance may be inferred by the stress laid on Lucy's baptism and profession of religion. But the characterization of her ready gift of speech and fluency, quote, not destitute of instruction and education, end quote, in a period when women were not supposed to exhibit such traits is extraordinary. Any of this written about a woman would be noteworthy enough, but this was a black woman and a former slave. Lucy Prince's obituary is the climax of an unprecedented life in her final impenetrability. Can one discern through the mists of time and the ambiguities of tradition something more factual about this remarkable woman who commanded respect and difference from those about her? Several attempts have been made over the years since her death, with varying degrees of success, depending on one's bias and crudelity. Seeking the grain of truth of Lucy Terry Prince involves an exploration into the shadow of women's history and the obscurity of African American history. On the one hand, largely recorded by unsympathetic male domination, and on the other, by an almost total disinclination to recognize black contributions to American life. Lucy Terry, as was known before her marriage, was one of several slaves owned in the village of Deerfield, Massachusetts in the 18th century. She was not the first black in the Puritan outpost settlement. That distinction seemed to belong to Robert Tego, Negro servant of the Reverend John Williams, who died May 11, 1695. From that time to the Revolution, 40 or more blacks inhabited the village, Lucy and her husband, Abijah Prince, however, were the only known freed slaves in 18th century Deerfield. Lucy, or Luce, was said to have been stolen out of Africa when a child. That she was brought first to Rhode Island, there is a general agreement, and is altogether plausible as the colony dominated the colonial American slave trade. It is not possible to identify in what ship the child came, but the event must have taken place about 1730. A study of the slave trade in Rhode Island reveals that in the period when Lucy arrived, the rum slave molasses traffic from Newport or Bristol to Africa and the West Indies was in its early development. 
From participation at first of only one or two ships annually, Rhode Islanders entered the slave trade in force in the 1730s. Between 1709 and 1807, when the slave trade was banned, Rhode Island merchants sponsored at least 934 slaving voyages and carried an estimated 106,544 Africans to the New World. Added to the difficulty of trying to identify Rhode Island slave arrivals in the 1730s is the subsequent reluctance of later generations to discuss the matter. Milford H. Munro wrote, Its immense profits made those who were engaged in it unwilling to make public many facts connected with the business. The higher moral tone, which now prevails throughout the world, has induced their descendants to suppress all the evidence which proved that the participation of their ancestors in it. Of course, those engaged in the triangular trade did not regard it as sinful. A Bristol slaver could record in his journal, We have now been twenty days upon the coast of Africa, and by the blessing of God shall soon have a good cargo. While another of a leading Bristol family and vestryman of St. Michael's Episcopal Church cheerfully gave thanks that an overruling providence has been pleased to bring to this land of freedom another cargo of benighted heathen to enjoy the blessings of a gospel dispensation. Records of those few slave cargoes which have survived sometimes mention a few children, but no babies. Lorenzo Green provides information that in 1720, the Massachusetts House remitted the import duty on a suckling child owned by Samuel Patishow and that a two-year-old slave child sold for one pound six shillings and eight pence in Farmington, Massachusetts, about 1756. Lucy was probably born in Africa. Had she been born at sea, the fact would surely not have escaped notice by myth-makers and later traditions surrounding her. Rodney B. Field, whose account of Lucy and Abijah is among the first, says she was said to have been a pure African blood. Since the capture, care, and importation of very small children would not have been economically feasible, it seems almost certain Lucy was brought to America in the arms of her mother, or as a very small child in the care of some adult slave, and too young to be manifested. Phil provides us with another important clue to the identity of the slave girl Lucy after her arrival in America and before she came to Deerfield. He says she was brought from Rhode Island to Enfield, Connecticut when five years old, date unknown. This statement is the probable explanation of why she was known as Lucy Terry before her marriage to Abijah Prince in 1756. Among the early settlers and founders of Enfield, Connecticut was Samuel Terry, progenitor of a local dynasty. Records of the town, its institutions, and its history barely bristle with Terry references. Samuel Terry, originally of Springfield, Massachusetts, is said to have been brought over in 1650 by John Pynchon, perhaps as an indentured servant. Here he prospered, and while a linen weaver by trade, he was also a farmer who accumulated extensive land holdings and enjoyed the esteem of his neighbors. It is perhaps significant to the story of Lucy that Samuel Terry died in 1730, but although he made a will probated at Northampton, Massachusetts, which jurisdiction then included Enfield, Connecticut, the document contains no mention of slave property. Obadiah Cooley, John Burt, and Thomas Stebbins, appraisers of Cherry's estate, had some difficulty in drawing upon the accounts, so much so that Terry's grandsons, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Jonathan, petitioned for additional time. 
finding the estate much entangled in many accounts and some of them at a considerable distance. Samuel Terry left his wife, Martha, one half of his household goods, a black mare, two cows, and six sheep. He left the residue of his estate to his sons, uh, who were identified parcels of their family's land holding in Enfield and Summers, Connecticut, as late as 1749. As most blacks were not named aboard the slavers, or even after landing, until they were purchased and transported to their owners, and since the surname Terry is not found among family names of Colonial Rhode Island or Deerfield, it is most probable that Lucy came to be called Terry through an association with that prominent family of Enfield, Connecticut, where she spent some time before coming to Deerfield. We cannot know how Lucy became the property of Deerfield resident Ebenezer Wells, but it is quite possible that she was part of the much-entangled estate of Samuel Terry. Her case may well be analogous to that of Phyllis, one of the three Negro maids in the estate of the Reverend Nehemiah Bull of Westfield, Massachusetts. On February 4, 1741, Oliver Partridge and Elizabeth Bull, executors of Bull's estate, sold to Timothy Childs of Deerfield for the sum of 100 pounds current bills of credit, a certain Negro girl named Phyllis of about nine years of age. The trio in Bull's inventory the previous year were valued at 195 pounds. The increase of 35 pounds value in Phyllis's case is due to an inflationary spiral being experienced throughout colonial New England. On July 12, 1744, Timothy Childs, 1720 to 1781, married Mary, daughter of Jonathan Wells, of the largest slaveholding family in Deerfield. Ephraim Williams, Jr., 1715 to 1755, through whose beneficence Williams College was founded, paid an even higher price, 225 pounds, an old tenor, for a Negro boy named Prince, age about nine years, a servant for life, on September 25, 1750. Earlier, Israel Williams, 1709-1788, of Hartfield, paid only 90 pounds for a certain Negro girl named Kate, aged about eight or nine years, on May 22, 1734. The purchase of young girls, however, was somewhat less common. Sale and, and exchange of New England slave property, even in the most humane circumstances, if not via public vindue, was still a reality, especially in the settlement of estates.